Well, good morning. Thanks for coming, and uh, I sure appreciated seeing that baptism and hearing your testimony, Brittany. And if anybody else is interested in uh, uh, thinking about what baptism is all about, please feel free to contact uh, one of us pastors as well. Thank you for joining us online as well. And wherever you are, turn in your Bibles, find a Bible someplace or a Bible app, and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes once again. As we continue our study there, we are in chapter 10 and looking at verses 12 through 20 this morning. Throughout this uh, important Old Testament book written by King Solomon, of course under God's inspiration 3,000 years ago, he has talked a lot about things that we cannot change, things that we cannot control. Uh, there are bad things that happen. There are evil people who oppress. There is injustice in the world. There are so many things we can't change. Just even last week in chapter 9, if you were with us in our study, you recall we, it was saying how no matter how good of a person you are, you're still going to die. It's kind of an obvious thing, but even the good die. And it even says that uh, if you live wisely, things can still go wrong. There's no guarantee that if you even make good decisions that the outcome's always going to be good. So it kind of, kind of brings you down a little bit. But he said, so since you don't know the future, enjoy life. Chapter 9, verses 7, 8, and 9. But then he said this. He said, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. In light of so many things we cannot change or cannot control, what is it that we can change? What does God's Word tell us we should focus on since we can't change some of the big things that are going on? About all those things, chapter 5, verse 1 said, you know, guard your steps when you go into the temple, when you go to meet God, because God's in charge of those things, and let your words be few, because God's in charge of those things. But what are the things that we're in charge of. And he says, though there is no guarantee of the outcomes, living wisely, the godly person lives wisely. And it really does change or transform your life. So there are things that will be different. And so he holds before us a, a life of wisdom. And really, so many times today in this passage, he will focus on what a foolish life looks like. And we learn by that negative Example, verse 12, the first issue is that wise people speak graciously. Words from a wise man's mouth are gracious, but a fool is consumed or destroyed by his own lips. At the beginning, his words are folly. At the end, they are wicked madness. And the fool multiplies words. No one knows what is coming and who can tell him what will happen after him. There'll be a lot of emphasis in our passage today about words because what we say affects so many areas of life. It really does change the direction and the, the climate, if you will, of our lives. So words from a wise man's mouth are gracious. Some of you in your Bible translation see the term uh, win him favor. 
And it's a word for grace from the Old Testament, the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, that it's really the common word about winning favor with somebody, somebody showing you grace or you're giving grace. Like uh, it says that Noah found favor or grace in God's eyes. And so it's a little bit uncertain whether this is about giving grace or receiving it. But here's the thing. Someone who gives grace often finds himself receiving it as well. And so what he's really saying is that the wise person realizes that the way we talk to people, maybe our family or closest people or any place, the way we talk is what determines the quality of our relationships. Gracious words. We all know someone who is gracious because we like them a lot. They're the people we like to work with. We hope we get teamed up with them. We like to do business with them because they don't uh, argue or, or they're not adversarial about everything. They're the teacher that you hope you get assigned to. They are the boss you hope you can work for. The friend who makes you feel valued and encouraged. The spouse you enjoy being with. Then there's other people. Second half of the verse. The fool is destroyed or consumed by his lips. In other words, their words tend to not be grace-filled. And again, grace is this undeserved, unconditional love, just so we're clear on that. So when everything is conditional, everything is like, you got to earn it. Everything is critical. That's this person. They're consumed. So this person flares up, argues, picks at faults frankly, rubs people wrong. What does that do to their relationships? Because while the gracious person ends up with winning people's favor and, 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 and close relationships because people enjoy them, this person rubbing people wrong all the time, people start to avoid them and they, they begin to kind of be isolated. And they maybe don't even hardly understand themselves, but they're pushing people away. Gracious words really has nothing to do with how well you put words together. This is not about being, having verbal skills at all. It's all about character. It's about an, an attitude of giving people the benefit of the doubt and bestowing grace on them. It'll transform your relationships. And what really is more significant to our lives day by day, horizontally, than our relationships. If you're a leader, if you're a dad, if you're a husband, if in, any, in any, any way where you are leading someone, grace is what motivates people to do well. Maybe it's to work well. Grace is what gives people permission to um, innovate. Because they know you got their back, you, you trust their motives if, if things don't work out so great. So a wise person speaks graciously and wins hearts while fools get in trouble. Relationally get in trouble with their mouths. Verse 13. At the beginning, his words are folly. At the end, they are wicked madness. So <clears throat> from the very beginning, they just kind of speak their mind. By the way, it's not a good thing just to say the first thing that comes to your mind. But that's this person... And in the name of, you know, just being honest or speaking in my mind, uh, they end up creating a lot of havoc around them. 
At the beginning, their words are folly. I had a professor who once said, these are the people who give you a piece of their mind they can't afford to lose. They're foolish when they start talking, and in the end, what is it? Wicked madness. So it starts out just as foolish talk, kind of like, I mean, why are they saying that? But it, it turns wicked, it turns sinful. That's so that first term, wicked. So from foolish to sinful, madness is talking about the emotional, mental harm, hurt that they cause. So while really verse 12 was saying how the fool hurts himself by his non-gracious, condemning, dogmatic words, here it's how they're hurting others. They're hurting others. The fool never apologizes, or rarely. Only if kind of forced into a corner. It's one of the marks of this person. Probably a lot of us in this room have at some point of our life experienced some kind of prolonged mistreatment with words. And if somebody comes to your mind in your life like that, you need to know you are not the person that person says you are. You are the person that God says you are. And you are the person that God saw and loved so much that he sent his only son to the cross to die for. That's, that's how valuable you are. And so you will first find healing from those kinds of words or relationships if you find that unconditional love through the cross of Jesus Christ. And then you need to surround yourself with uh, what Brittany called an army. <laughs> You need to surround yourself with people who understand and though imperfectly they are seeking to follow and be like Christ in dispensing that kind of grace. The words of a fool result in wicked madness, emotional harm. They, you might, if you're a person who is asking yourself, is God saying that I'm doing some of this? Just be open and transparent with him, with the Lord. Say, where are my words hurtful? Where are they negative? Where, where am I justifying my, my, my critical spirit, my digs that I think are so right? Am I seeing hurt in the eyes of people around me? And say, oh God, help me because by your spirit, I mean, if you put your faith in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you and he can be transforming the way you talk because he'll transform the way you think. He'll, he'll transform your heart. Jesus said, Luke 6, 45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So that's where the real work will take place. Verse 14, more about our words. He doesn't let off on the, on the accelerator, does he? He talks about fools who talk on and on about how they know the future. The fool multiplies words. No one knows what's coming and who can tell him what will happen after him multiplies words. I saw an article uh, this past week. Uh, it was from the Smithsonian Magazine titled, Most People Don't Know When to Stop Talking. It didn't take a scientific study for us to know that, but they actually did one. Um, 252 conversations were analyzed and 69% wished that the conversations had ended sooner. Uh, Solomon, when he wrote the Proverbs, made this point as well. 
When there are many words, wrongdoing is unavoidable, but one who restrains his lips is wise. Or this one, Proverbs 17, 28, even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. So what happens here in this verse about the fool? Um, Some of your translations uh, attach the first line of verse 14 to the previous sentence and then start a new sentence midway. I think uh, that's what mine has here, but I think, uh, let me put this up here. I think this is a better way to understand this. Verse 14 is, is one sentence in itself. The two halves are connected. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. In other words, this is the person who uh, comes across as the know-it-all. They know what's going to happen. I mean, I'll, I'll, in fact, this is a phrase you will often hear this person say. I'll tell you what's going to happen. I'll tell you what's going to happen. Now, if you're if you're a, a passionate sports fan, you've, you've and, and I've probably said this, you see the coach make a decision that, you, you, oh, no, I can't believe they did that. I'll tell you what's going to happen. I mean, if you've paid the price of admission, you're watching the commercials, you can say anything you want to. It's kind of humorous. But is that our approach to life? We know what's going to happen. Chapter 5, verse 1, remember, it says, guard your steps when you come into the house of, the, of God and let your words be few. Or here, the fool multiplies words, though no one knows what's going to happen. So, so be careful that you have a humility in your, in your words. That It's not like you're, here, here's God on the throne and you're kind of like scooting him over. You want to be co-regent with him because we don't know the future. See, the wise person is rightly concerned and sees patterns, but a wise person will say things like, I'm concerned that, I'm praying that. And, and, and if, you, if you have influence in someone's lives, you come alongside and say, you know, son or daughter or friend, you know, I, I see that if you go this way. So it's not like we are ignorant of the future, but the fool pretends, if you will, he knows it all. So don't multiply words. Listening on and on is never a problem. Talking on and on is a problem. So be wise in your words. He goes on to speak now of a different realm, but it's related. Wise people work diligently. It'll show up. Wisdom shows up in the workplace or really anything that God has you uh, to do. If you recall from last week, kind of the launching point of, of much of this, the last part of Ecclesiastes, which is a lot of Proverbs, the launching point really goes back, I think, to chapter 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the grave where you are going, there's no working, planning, wisdom, or knowledge. Okay, we, we, so we, we looked at this last week and we understood that God has a, has a purpose or, or purposes for our lives. And so we should, we should put our whole person, whatever your hand finds to do, grab it like you grab a tool and, and make sure that you're accomplishing some of those purposes, uh, purposes at, on your day job, purposes in your family or those people you impact, purposes in a ministry, someplace maybe outside of your family, whatever it is, grab hold of it. And so he comes back to the fact that if, if you understand your purposes, then work Diligently, But here's what it says. The first proverb is, really it's about laziness. It says, 
A fool's work wearies him. He does not know the way to town. It's a short proverb, but uh, Bible students have, have struggled with what it means. Um, kind of difficult to see the relation of the first line to the second. In fact, it's really not so much about laziness. It's about complaining, I think. A fool's work wearies him. He's using the word for work or toil that Solomon's used throughout this book because he talks a lot about the workplace. He's talking about the parts of our job or whatever, retired or not, uh, employed or not, but whatever it is that you have to do all day that is hard to do. And in the case of someone who's employed, it's the reason you get paid because it's hard. And everybody has hard work uh, to do but what is differently about, different about this, everybody who has hard work is emotionally drained by it because whether your hard work is physical or whether your hard work is mental, it does bring this second term, the wearisome. But what is different about the fool is this. He has a perpetual exasperation, perpetual complaining about his or her job. Here's what's wrong with it. Here's what's difficult about it. Here's why I have it the worst. Ever work by this, next to somebody like that? But here's a second line, and it's interesting. He doesn't know the way to town. It's thought that's probably an ancient saying, which is kind of like a person who can't just do the simplest task. He can't even just find his way to town, or he'd get lost on an escalator, kind of a statement so and somehow this person because they're so focused on complaining it's like they can't do some simple things well so stop complaining and figure out how to get to town and you, you start doing a, a little thing well and add up a lot of little things you're doing a lot of things well in your in your your work and your job and and whatever God gives you to do is going to be productive. So it points us to the fact that not that our, whether our work is hard or not, but what is our attitude about what's hard in our work or whatever God calls us to do all day. I recall the words of Paul in Philippians, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure Children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine. You're different. You shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. I'm sure that some of you as parents have used this verse in parenting, maybe against your, to your kids. Here, the Bible says stop complaining, but, you know, we've got to look in the mirror because we all have those comp that complaining heart and say, my attitude about complaining or arguing actually becomes key to my witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we're called to shine. And the reality is that if you're a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ, you are probably the Christian someone knows best. And so whether or not you shine is going to be determined by things like an attitude of complaint or argument. We're accountable to do good work. And uh, part of that is priorities now, verses 16 and 17. And uh, Solomon, of course, having uh, been a king, the work environment he knew best was the court. And so some of his illustrations are out of that. I think sometimes when we, when we see what he talks about the king, it's not so much that he's emphasizing politics. He's just, that was his workplace. 
Woe to you, O land, whose king was a servant, and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of noble birth, and whose princes eat at a proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So there's a contrast between two kinds of uh, kingdoms, kings, and courts. And it was their, their work priorities. Woe to you, so nation, you're in trouble. If your king was a servant, some of you are looking at a Bible translation that says whose kingdom, uh, king is a child. Uh, the, the Hebrew term just means a young male, and often young men were servants, and so you kind of had uh, the boy or the man, the young guy. Uh, it, it kind of describes an older teen, younger adult uh, individual. And so in, in this context, is it talking about a servant? It's probably just talking about a young guy who became king very young. And uh, that's the way monarchies worked, is that uh, when, when the dad died, the young man was suddenly king, whatever age. And in some cases in Israel, uh, king became, Joashua became king at, at eight years old. And of course, he had to have, uh, or Josiah had to have help. But... A young man could become king very early. So he says, be careful because some are not ready for it. And the problem is, whose princes feast in the morning. So we see the problem is that when you're very young and in a high position of authority, you can be easily influenced by your peers. What's really interesting is to think that Solomon's son named Rehoboam, if you know the Old Testament story, Rehoboam, he wasn't all that young, but as a young king, probably 30-ish or something, as a young king taking over after Solomon died, he had the older, wiser men and said, you know, Rehoboam, your dad was kind of rough uh, to work for, so why don't you dial it back? He says, "Uh, let me talk to my peers. And he goes to the younger men and they say, no, Put the hammer down. And, and what happened is that Rehoboam followed the young men's advice and his harsh authoritarian style of leadership actually is what split the kingdom and becomes a major part of uh, Israel, uh, Jewish history, nation of Israel, because it was two kingdoms from then on. Solomon describes the same dynamic, but the issue here is a young king whose peers like to party. Woe to you if your princes feast in the morning. So you picture this young man, and he appoints his friends as his princes, typical, but they are just thinking of the perks of the job. Hey, our friend is now the king. Uh, Call in the wine early. Contrast, in verse 17, is to a kingdom with a wise king. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of noble birth. So while the... uh, other scenario, they, the officials didn't get much work done and the kingdom would suffer. This kingdom would be blessed because the king was of noble birth and the princes ate at a proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So here the issue is not even about age. There's nothing, there's not an age term, but a noble birth is not so much significant. What's significant is the result. So he is indeed the son of the previous king. He's a noble birth. But what's different about him is he is not influenced. He is not drawn into that. And so his princes know how to get their work done first. And so they understand priority instead of procrastination. Again, thinking back to chapter 9, verse 10. 
Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Means that we know how to prioritize our work to make sure the work gets done first. And so if it's something God's called you to do at your day job or in your family or in your ministry, we, we need these reminders because we all tend to default towards what's easiest and most fun first. But you will bless your company, your organization, your ministry, your family to get the work done first. I think in many ways Solomon's describing himself, uh, the nation of Israel at its best under Solomon, because Solomon certainly was an example of a hardworking, wise leader. Uh, we understand his weakness because at some point we know the story. He uh, failed spiritually in that he was accommodating the idolatry of his many pagan wives, but he was hardworking. And so if you take the biographical pieces that we know of him from 1 Kings the early chapters, and from Ecclesiastes, the early chapters, you see a man who, who threw himself into his work. He was a philosopher, indeed, a wise man. He was a scientist. Both botany and zoology are mentioned in 1 Kings 4. He was a builder, of course, building God's amazing, amazing temple for God, as well as palaces and says vineyards and gardens and parks, Ecclesiastes 2. And and he was a good businessman, and he, he brought in a lot of wealth into the nation. And, of course, we know him as a writer. And God used him to write our three uh, books, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. So he worked hard, and he probably had witnessed many, many people who did not. And so throughout the Proverbs, and now the Proverbs in Ecclesiastes, we see reference to this. So he, he's urging us to, whatever your hand finds to do, do it diligently, and now he gives a very specific example, verse 18. If a man is lazy, the rafters sag. If his hands are idle, the roof leaks. I like his practical applications. The rafters are sagging because of what? They got wet. How'd they get wet? There's a hole in the roof on top. And, and why was that hole allowed to... Because... It says, my translation says his hands were idle. And that actually is that, that term, whether you have idleness or in, indolence. It, it's a word that really means your hands are hanging limp like this. So the contrast would be going back to chapter 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, you're going to grip the hammer or the axe or the shovel. Whatever your hands find to do, or you just kind of sit around and uh, hold nothing but the remote or something. Uh, so... so is your hands busy doing what you're supposed to be doing? So he let the roof keep deteriorating. It's a practical, godly thing to maintain what you own. And so, uh, in fact, I thought of something this week when I was reading this going, uh, yeah, got to take care of that. We all have some rafters sagging. So if, you're, if your muffler is making noise, it's probably a good time to get it addressed before it falls off and goes into traffic or you have more expense or if your toilet is leaking down there on the floor you can't ignore it just because you can't see it because the joists below might be rotting out and so are we good stewards of physical things because we've talked many times about the fact that everything is spiritual when you live under the authority of God and, and want to respond to him in wise, God, wise godly wisdom Everything really is spiritual. One more area where the fool fails, and this doesn't surprise us, and that is uh, the use of money. 
A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes life merry, but money is the answer for everything. Amen? Careful reading that. <laughs> There's your life verse right there. Money is the answer for everything. Context, people, okay. Who is saying this? This is not Solomon's words of wisdom. This is the fool's. This is, this is the, in quotes, this is, this is that text or email when you realize, I need to write the word sarcasm after this, or <laughs> a couple of initials or something that explains my emotion here, because he's, he's telling us what those princes of verse 16 are like. Feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and hey, money answers everything. So this person sees money just as a means to finance their own pleasure. There's not a stewardship of work mindset that God has given me something to do and to accomplish, but rather, I owe, I owe, so I can have fun, laughter, wine, and finance the things that I enjoy doing. And that, frankly, that's the world's perspective of money. Almost, almost around the world, commercials, this is what you want and so this is how we'll, we'll help you uh, finance it so that you can have fun. And so there's this whole mindset that the goal of money is to have more fun. Because Solomon's talked about joy, it's important, I think, we dif differentiate between joy and fun. Um, joy is not the same because when fun is the goal... You drift into a selfish mindset, and in the end, a selfish mindset never ends in joy. But when pleasing God and accomplishing your purpose is your goal, you're not selfish, but you begin to see a stewardship. You're pleasing God, you're serving others, and guess what you end up with? You end up with joy. So what is your goal? Money is not the answer to everything. It's, it's a tool. We've often called it a stewardship. Uh, God knows just exactly how much to bless us with or to withhold so that we can, he can accomplish his purposes, not our purposes. And so what is his purpose you know, in our life spiritually that he would use whatever money he allows, whatever mistakes he allows us to make? What is his purpose? Because how we handle money is a, a sacred stewardship and is meant to be a sacred blessing, but we will be held accountable. So, descriptions of the wise and the fool. There's one more in verse 20. It goes back more to things we say. He began with speaking graciously, and now this one is that wise people restrain their criticisms. Verse 20. Do not revile the king, even in your thoughts, or curse the rich in your bedroom. Because a bird of the air may carry your words, and a bird on the wing may report what you said. You've maybe heard the phrase, a little birdie told me. That comes from here. Or even perhaps the phrase, the walls have ears, probably comes from uh, this as well. There's, a, there's a, just a single uh, term that he uses twice. For, uh, mine says revile and curse. But the word revile or curse is, is just describing that you are saying negative things about someone with an intent to harm them, uh, slander them, put them in their place, uh, create their failure or something. 
Be careful, he says. And it's about the king, and it's about the rich. So the general idea is that it's people who are over you. There's this tendency we have that criticism flows upward. Someone that we perceive to be above us is a target, and, and anybody that's on a pedestal then becomes a target. So because we perceive them as wealthy or, or they're the boss, they are, they are more often the targets of criticism. And Solomon says, be careful about that. Don't even revile them in your thoughts. Why the thoughts? I mean, surely we're free to think as we want to. Well, the problem is, he says, that what you think will become what you say. And we've already learned that what you say is in what can get you in trouble. So what about if you say it in a real private place? That's the concept of the bedroom. The idea is that we are most guilty of gossip when we are with um, people we think agree and people we think won't tell anybody. In fact, we are ridiculously optimistic that people will keep quiet about the things that we tell them that are supposed to be quiet. Because it doesn't turn out that way, and that's the concept of the little bird. You know, somehow, somebody shared it with somebody they thought wouldn't tell anybody, and they shared it with somebody who maybe won't tell anybody. And eventually, of course, the power of exponential gossip fulfills its course. Solomon may even be picturing some of those foolish princes of verse 16. They, of course, like to party on the king's money, but uh, when the king was out of the room, what did they say about the king? Didn't, did, they, did they resent his, his position, his wealth? Because very often that's, that's how it is. That, that really what's happening is that we have this jealousy <coughs> of someone's position or wealth, and then from the jealousy comes this resentment. From this resentment comes this suspicion. From the suspicion, eventually we begin to verbalize this stuff, and, and uh, that's what gets us in trouble. Slander and gossip. Solomon talks about it a lot. The Word of God talks about it. Are we careful? Are we careful with what we describe to others that put others down? I, I would, I'm sure you can't go a day or a week without hearing something that is a negative or a put down, but can you go a day or a week with a guard on your lips? So much of this passage of wisdom has been about what we say, and I think we would uh, be well served to look at an important New Testament passage that uh, teaches us about the tongue. As many of you know, uh, James 3. You need, well, I'm going to just put up a few uh, uh, the portions of this, but the first 20 verses or so is, is vital to our understanding of how our words affect people. So let's, let's read a few of these and then come to some conclusions. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. That's his illustration. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. And then he says, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. So it's this acknowledgement <clears throat> that indeed, 
James is right in the context of a New Testament church. If you read through the book of James, it's a lot of this practical wisdom. He had, a, had this, this shepherding heart of, you know, careful about this and careful about this and make sure of this. And, if, you know, somebody rich comes into your, your assembly and, you know, he's thinking church. And he says, you come together and you sing God's praises and we, you mean it. And it's really sincere worship. But then 30 minutes later, we could be putting someone down. So he says, that shouldn't be. And then he calls upon us for wisdom a couple of verses later. Who is wise in their standing among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Just, just stop there. Humility and wisdom are always paired. If you want to be wise, you will be humble. If you are humble, you actually will be wise. There's a humility about our words and our thinking. And, and uh, instead of this, the, the dogmatism, there's a humility. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, because we defend bitter envy and selfish ambition, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, Where's it really coming from? Of the devil? Or demonic? So there is an author who is spewing into our world system this bitter envy and selfish ambition, and it creates all kinds of evil and difficulty. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. It disintegrates into complete chaos. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the source of our problems, if you will. As we put together some of the um, thoughts that we've seen in Ecclesiastes as well as James, let's try to think through a little bit of uh, evaluation of what track are you on? I just want to kind of see a progression through these passages. If we are pursuing God's purposes, that's that's chapter 9, verse 10. Whatever God has given you to do, to do it with all your might. If you're pursuing his purposes, then you will need to pursue wise thinking, wise deeds, wise attitudes. These, will be, these kind of inner character issues are going to be top on your priority list. And the result will be your words will be different. What you say around you will be different. You'll have gracious words. And that brings good relationships and other blessings that come from gracious words and, and the impact and effect on others around us. In contrast, both Solomon and James have taught us what happens if we are absorbing satanic ideas of bitter envy and selfishness and, and these kind of things, because then we will find ourselves filled with selfish thoughts and we are bitter and we are lazy and we are em envious. And what do we talk we talk hurtfully. People around us are getting hurt and offended. and The result then, as James has just said, is that there are going to be hurt relationships, chaos, and all kinds of evil. God is calling us to wisdom. There are many things we can't change in our lives or in our world, things that are up to the sovereignty of God. But we've been warned, and yet we've been encouraged. We have to admit sometimes where we are creating self-inflicted misery but then we have to embrace God's wisdom that really does transform 
the way we live and what we experience. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we uh, so need practical wisdom and you are filling our hearts and minds through your word. I trust daily with uh, the way you think so that our thoughts would begin to mirror yours. Help us to see our world as under your control and then to realize that our life, while under your control, we bear so much responsibility for thinking wise, uh, godly, uh, gracious thoughts. And then may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts Lord, be acceptable in your sight, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.